welcome to A-Minder, a podcast where we summarize the latest publications on neurodegenerative disease research so that you can stay up to date with the newest findings. Every month, our team of scientists will sort and organize the titles into themes and present shortened versions of the abstracts. We'll make sure to mention the title, the journal, the first author, and the last author for each publication. Whether you're in the lab, on the bus, or cooking your meal, we hope you find this podcast helpful. Hi everyone, Sarah here. Glad to be back to host this section again. How are you? Not that you can talk to me right now, but hey, if you want to chat, you can find us on Twitter. We always love hearing from listeners. We recently had a chance to connect with other podcasts, and we'll be hosting a few bonus interviews with them, so stay tuned for that. We also just had a great conversation with the CCNA. That's the Canadian Consortium on Neurodegeneration in Aging, and French will be Consortium Canadien en Neurodegenerescence Associée au Vieillissement. Bah, that word gives me trouble in all languages, it seems like. They're getting ready for their sixth partner forum and science day, which will be happening virtually this year. This will be an opportunity for experts and partners of the consortium to share a bit on what's going on in dementia research. I remember going back in 2016 when it was held here in Vancouver, and I thought it was cool to see anything from the bench to the bed. There's even a poster on social media used by caregivers, which I thought was interesting. There was a huge emphasis on developing a national strategy for AD research to develop therapeutics that are disease-modifying. If you're interested, mark October 14 on your calendar and check their website for more information. And this actually provides me with a nice segue into the topic of this episode. I will be covering the papers where existing licensed drugs are investigated. These drugs can be used for other treatments and tested for their neuroprotective potential with the goal to repurpose them for AD treatment. Other drugs you will hear about in this section may be currently used for treating AD, but present with opportunities for improvement or refinement. Some of the studies grouped in this section also test for the effectiveness of an existing AD treatment or seek to isolate a specific compound from an established AD drug. Then, you'll hear about new methods of delivery that are either more effective at crossing the blood-brain barrier or safer. And last, I have a couple papers here that actually fit under clinical testing and somehow made their way into this document. If you're generally interested into clinical testing in AD, you should check out a dedicated episode on this hosted by Joseph. Now, on to existing FDA-approved drugs for AD, starting with a paper titled Treatment Pathway Analysis of Newly Diagnosed Dementia Patients in Four Electronic Health Record Databases in Europe. The authors ran some meta-analysis on results from past clinical studies. This work was published in Social Psychiatry and Psychiatric Epidemiology, with first author being James and last author is Gordon. It's a good time for me to remind you of our bibliography, so you can sign up for that if you follow the link in our episode notes, and then while you're listening, you can just write down the time where paper of interest uh, comes up, and you'll be able to find that in our timestamp bibliography. For this paper, I have Joseph to thank for summarizing the abstract, so thanks, Joseph. Here, the authors describe a retrospective cohort study that investigates the first, second, and third-line therapies used to manage and treat symptoms of AD. 
Medical records of patients diagnosed with dementia between 1997 and 2017 were collected from four databases based in UK, Denmark, Italy, and the Netherlands. The authors identified almost 192,000 newly diagnosed dementia patients in these four databases. Of this group, around 29,000 had received a diagnosis of AD. Of these patients, the most common first-line therapy initiated upon diagnosis, so within a year, was acetylcholinesterase inhibitors. Specific um, acetylcholinesterase inhibitors were used depending on the region. Rivastigmine was used most commonly in the Netherlands, Dunepazil in Italy and the UK, and an N-methyl-D-aspartate blocker memantine in Denmark. I could have just said an MDA blocker. Okay, now um, on to specific drugs, starting with donepezil. In case you are new to the field, donepezil is a reversible selective acetylcholinesterase inhibitor currently approved for the symptomatic treatment of AD. We have two papers in this category, with the first one titled Efficacy of THN-201, a combination of donepezil and mefloquine, 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 okay, one of those to reverse neurocognitive deficits in Alzheimer's disease. You'll find it in Frontiers in Neuroscience, published by Droguer, first author, and last author is Charveria. In summary, previous work uncovered the role of astrocytes in cognition, and more specifically, we're looking at cellular networks and communications via GAT junctions. In this context, you may have heard of the junctional protein connexin, and in this paper, the authors used mefloquine or mefloquine to inhibit connexins in astrocytes in two AD mouse models that were treated with donepezil. For your information, mefloquine is a medication used to prevent or treat malaria. What they found is mefloquine or mefloquine gave donepezil a boost and further increased its procognitive effects. Mechanistically, it seems like mefloquine enhanced the release of acetylcholine in the hippocampus of these rodents when used in conjunction with donepezil. This all happened with the inhibited connexins. What happens when you silence the connexin gene? Well, the authors tried this and found similar results. They then conclude that not only are astrocyte networks important for cognition, but that this process is dependent upon connexins. The next paper was published in Neurology and Therapy by Tahami Monfaret, and last author is Perry. You'll find it in the title, Treatment Options for Dementia with Lewy Bodies, a Network Meta-Analysis of Randomized Control Trials. This paper doesn't target AD specifically, but I decided to include it anyways, because donepezil is one of the drugs currently being used to treat AD. In Japan, it's also used to treat dementia with Lewy Bodies, which is another type of dementia. However, the options are limited, and this is why the authors ran a network meta-analysis to look at the treatment options outlined in trials. The studies they collected looked at donepezil, rivastigmine, memantine, and quetiapine, or ketiapine. This one is an antipsychotic medication, if you're wondering. They took into account drug dosages, adverse events, discontinuations, change in cognitive function, and generally, donepezil seemed to do better than the others. However, the authors warn us of some limitations, such as sample size, ambiguity. Actually, this may not be the right word. Uncertainty? Maybe. 
Well, because the samples were heterogeneous and the results were not statistically significant. So, more trials are needed to better validate denepisil and other drugs as treatments for uh, dementia of Lewy body. Seems like the conclusion of this paper, or at least what I gathered from the abstract. Now, along the same lines of exploring the full potential of denepisil, Let's look at how effective this drug proves in a rat model of AD with brain insulin resistance. This may be of interest to you if you study type 2 diabetes and AD comorbidity. This paper is called Evaluation of the Neuroprotective Effect of the Nepazil in Type 2 Diabetic Rats. It was published by Goma, first author, and last author is Nicola, and you'll find it published in Fundamental and Clinical Pharmacology. As I just mentioned, the goal of the study was to test the potential of denepazil to delay the progression of AD in rats with brain insulin resistance. This model was created with a combination of a diet high in fat and high in fructose, followed by injections of streptozotocin to destroy beta cells in the pancreas. Ouch. And treatment with denepazil extended over 8 weeks. The authors report that donepazil treatment reduced the following pathological features seen in this rat model, amyloid beta deposition and cholinesterase overactivity in the hippocampus. So these were the two features they looked at. Again, they looked at A-beta deposition and cholinesterase overactivity in the hippocampus. On the other hand, treatment improved the following. The expression of glutamate receptor like AMPA and MDA and cognitive function. So these two were improved. There are a number of things the authors measured which were not altered by this treatment. Those are phosphotau levels, caspase 3, GSK3 beta, TNF alpha, IL1 beta, glutathione, and superoxide dismutase level or SHOD. They also looked at blood glucose levels, insulin, cholesterol. Ah, okay, this is a long list, but these actually um, were not altered by the treatment. If you stay tuned with this episode, there's another paper coming up that looks at these measures, but with metformin. So, in conclusion, it seems like Donepazil's positive effects on memory in this diabetes rat model would operate by targeting amyloid beta deposition, cholinesterase activity, and glutamate receptors. The authors do point at the limitations of this drug, considering it did not affect the second biggest hallmark of AD. Just phosphotau. I feel like <laughs> I spend so much time studying AD and A beta that phosphotau seems so neglected, but maybe it's because I didn't look much into it before. Anyway, so yeah, it seems like this drug did not affect phosphotau and other pathological features, so that long list I went through earlier. So I guess its use may be limited or weren't combination with other drugs. Huh, we shall see. In keeping with this drug class, I will now cover papers on cholinesterase inhibitors in general, starting with one looking at optimizing butyryl cholinesterase inhibitors. This paper is titled The Structure-Based Optimization of Delta-Soltone-Fused Pyrazole-Aselective Butyryl Cholinesterase Inhibitors. This paper was published in the European Journal of Medical Chemistry by first author Zhang, last author Tang. Here, the authors perform structure-based optimization to improve the effectiveness of butylcholinesterase inhibitors that have a delta-sulfonolactone-fused pyrazole scaffold, in case this means something to you. Adding a tertiary benzylamine at the 5 position 
significantly increases butyrylcholinesterase inhibitory activity. Two compounds synthesized with this approach were highly selective um, butyrylcholinesterase inhibitors, and these two compounds exhibited mild antioxidant, non-toxic, and neuroprotective effects. Kinetic studies showed that one of these compounds had much higher affinity for butyrylcholinesterase over acetylcholinesterase. Findings from this study show that this approach on structure-based optimization is consistent with previous results of structure activity relationship analysis. Whew, sorry, this one was quite um, wordy or complicated, so I hope I spoke to you if this is something that you study. The next paper was published in Frontiers in Pharmacology by first author Lowe and last author is Pervushin. It is called Anticholinergic Drugs Interact with Neuroprotective Chaperone LPGDS and Modulate Cytotoxicity of Beta Amyloids. That's a long title, but just write down the time if this interests you and you can check it in the bibliography. So, in this paper, the authors look at the use of anticholinergic drugs as a risk factor for developing AD. You may already know that some FDA-approved drugs for AD act on the cholinergic system by inhibiting the breakdown of acetylcholine. So, it makes sense that blocking the action of this neurotransmitter would not be so good. If you're interested in other modifiable risk factors, we do have two episodes dedicated to this specifically, and... These episodes show some overlap with what I'm presenting here. So if you're interested, you can check them out. Here you'll hear about the drug chlorpeniramine and another drug called trazodone. The authors are specifically interested in how these drugs affect amyloid beta and lipokaline type prostaglandin D synthase. So <laughs> that's full LPGDS for you. They find that they both, uh, they being chlorpeniramine and trazodone, uh, both inhibit LPGDS. Looking at amyloid beta, they report that the two drugs do interact with A-beta-1240, forming not only more fibrils, but nastier ones. These aggregates are more toxic to the cells. So, on one hand, these drugs inhibit the neuroprotective prostaglandin D synthase but also enhance amyloid beta aggregation and toxicity. In light of this, I'm not surprised that they are considered a risk factor for AD, but luckily, this is a modifiable risk factor. Now, on to another class of drugs, an MDA receptor antagonist. You may be familiar with mementine, which is currently being used to treat symptoms in people with moderate to advanced Alzheimer's disease. It slows the decline in cognition and function, but it's not considered a cure for AD because it is not a disease-modifying agent. You'll find our first paper in the series published in ACS Omega by first author Vu and last author Fan. It's titled Simple Two-Step Procedure for the Synthesis of Memantine Hydrochloride from 1,3-dimethyladamantane I'm trying, okay? <laughs> okay, this paper lays out a new way to synthesize memantine hydrochloride to improve on previous methods. These older methods involve three or four reaction steps with a yield of 54 to 77%. But the method the authors propose here would give a yield of 83% and is done in two steps only instead of three to four. Ah, 
These multi-step reactions bring back memories from our organic chemistry class as an undergrad. <laughs> well, now on to a different class. Introducing... Monoamine oxidases. And we have here one paper uh, published by Konku, first author, and last author is Cordero. And you'll find this paper published in Current Topics in Medicinal Chemistry under the title, Developing a Multi-Target Model to Predict the Activity of Monoamine Oxidase A and B Drugs. I will let you know this abstract was summarized by Bumika, a new team member. You'll hear her host some of our upcoming episodes. She's great. Now, a commonly adopted treatment for neuropsychiatric disorders like Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease is the use of monoamine oxidase inhibitors. These, uh, the enzyme isoforms of these inhibitors, so uh, monoamine oxidase A and monoamine oxidase B, lead to the breakdown of monoamine neurotransmitters. This called for the need to find compounds with greater selectivity and fewer side effects. Isn't this everyone's search? Greater selectivity and less undesirable effects. The authors review computational approaches for prediction and development of new monoamine oxidase inhibitors, and they also unveil a multitask model to predict uh, the isoforms, so A and B, inhibitors. The novel quantitative structure-activity relationship multitask model employs linear discriminant analysis. The molecular descriptors of over 5,000 compounds used in the development of this model were calculated in this paper. It was found that the proposed model correctly identified all the compounds. A series of classical statistical tests verified the validity and reproducibility of the model. This indicates that the proposed computational model may be helpful in developing new, more selective monoamine oxidase inhibitors for the treatment of serious illnesses like AD. Whew, are you still with me? Well, before I move on to repurposing drugs used for other diseases, I think we should talk about the papers that address methods of delivery. Sometimes a drug can be effective at producing the desirable effect so long as it reaches its target. However, uh, the presence of the blood-brain barrier can make this tricky. So drugs that seem effective in vitro or even in vivo in some animal models fail to cross the blood-brain barrier in humans and therefore show a decreased efficacy or even no efficacy. Sometimes we can also seek new ways of delivering a drug that reduces side effects. If this is of interest to you, stay tuned after the break. If not, you can jump to the section after it. Follow the episode notes for the timestamp and I'll be right back. Alright, now on to a series of papers that we've sorted under methods of delivery, starting with one titled Intranasal Delivery of Mesenchymal Stem Cell-Derived Extracellular Vesicles Exert Immunomodulatory and Neuroprotective Effects in a Triple Transgenic Model of Alzheimer's Disease. You'll find it published in Stem Cells Translational Medicine, the first author, Losurdo, and last author is Coco. Okay, so there are a few ideas that are integrated in the introduction, so I'll give you the main ones and bullet points. One, you'll want to know that this paper focuses on targeting neuroinflammation. 
Two, the authors tried to use a different method of drug delivery to better target the innate immune cells in the brain. And the third idea here is that they use mesenchymal stem cells because they release small extracellular vesicles, which can then be delivered to the brain. More specifically, exosomes and microvesicles. This is interesting. Two people in our lab looked at exosomes, and I did my fair share of exosome extraction. It's a very, very long and tedious process. Took like two days every time. Ah, so glad to be done with that. <laughs> Previously, extracellular vesicles from mesenchymal stem cells were delivered to AD mice through two routes, intravenous and intracerebroventricular. Both ways led to a regulation in the inflammatory response in these mice which is a good thing in this context. Now, the authors want to try administering these vesicles intranasally. They test this on triple transgenic mice. Also, note that the source cells were preconditioned with cytokines. The vesicles got to the brain and reduced the microglia response. Plus, the spine density on dendrites increased. I'm not sure how this related to inflammation. I guess I'll have to read the paper to learn. In general, these vesicles shifted microglia from pro-inflammatory to an anti-inflammatory phenotype. So, the intranasal route, on top of being non-invasive, successfully addresses the inflammatory processes seen in the AD brain in a transgenic mouse model. Next is another paper where the intranasal route was considered as a method of drug delivery. However, know that this study also seeks to develop and refine acetylcholinesterase inhibitors. The title of this paper is Bifunctional Sterically Hindered Phenolipid-Based Delivery Systems as Potential Multi-Target Agents Against Alzheimer's Disease Via an Intranasal Route. It was published in Nanoscale by Burilova and Sinyashin. In this paper, the authors use a cholinesterase inhibitor called SHP-S-R, which also presents antioxidant properties. They test different lengths of the methyl spacer. Uh, and this methyl spacer actually represents the S in the name of the compound. So remember how I said SHP-S-R says that S in the middle. It's kind of easier to read than to listen to. So I apologize for this. Um, so yeah, they tried different lengths of the methyl spacer there and they tried different alkyl chains and that's represented by the R in the name of the compound. So as a reminder, it was SHP-S-R. So with different methyl spacers and alkyl chains, we'll use something like SHP-2-16, for example. In this one, actually, the SHP-2-16 show the best inhibitory potential and selectivity against acetylcholinesterase. So that one had a um, methyl spacer, like 2 and 16 for the length of the alkyl chain. Sorry, I'm spending a lot of time on this because I'm a very visual person, so I'm trying to empathize with how you're receiving this. <laughs> so hopefully I'm not butchering this too much. Anyways. They further the investigation by delivering this compound to rats intranasally. The model they used was copolamine-induced AD-like dementia. And in this model, the authors found that the treatment they propose is effective at reducing dementia symptoms. They conclude by praising this method of delivery to treat AD. For the purpose of this podcast, I highlighted the method of delivery outlined in this paper, but 
there's a lot more going on here and it was beyond my understanding. So I encourage you to check out this paper if you're interested in the chemical properties and characteristics of this drug. So more stuff on the spacer <laughs> and the alkyl chains. Anyways, still along the lines of the intranasal delivery route is a paper titled Intranasal Dantrolene as a Disease Modifying Drug in Alzheimer's 5X FAD Mice. It was published by first author She and last author's Way in Journal of Alzheimer's Disease. Going deeper into how good the intranasal route is, this paper directly compares it to the subcutaneous administration of a drug in the 5X FAD mouse AD model. Interestingly, the drug they choose is dandroline, which is a muscle relaxer. You may have come across it if you studied spinal cord injuries or multiple sclerosis or strokes. Results show that in terms of drug concentrations in the brain versus plasma, the intranasal delivery of dandroline was more effective. This means that the drug was better able to reach its target in the brain rather than remain in the bloodstream. Generally, dandroline did not significantly alter amyloid beta deposition in the brain, but it did improve memory when delivered intranasally, regardless of whether this was done before disease onset or after. To conclude, the authors suggest that dandroline should be considered to improve memory in AD, and if so, to be delivered intranasally rather than subcutaneously. Switching gears a little, we are now going to look into nanocarriers for the delivery of drugs. Say what? Nanocarriers? Did that sound exciting? I hope it did. So the title of this paper is The Effect of Bakelin Loaded Y-Shaped to arm Copolymer on Spatial Memory and Hippocampal Expression of DHCR24, Seladin, S-E-L-A-D-I-N, and SIRT6 genes. So these are three genes in a rat model of Alzheimer's. And this was the title of the paper. You'll find it published in International Journal of Pharmaceutics by Aranjan Zadeh, first author, and last author is Sharafi. Here, we will explore nanocarriers as a method of delivery. To synthesize these nanocarriers, the authors used mictoarm copolymers that were Y-shaped, as well as polyethylene glycolysine 2. They loaded them with a flavonoid called bakaline so that they can test this delivery method in vitro and in vivo. To do so, they use various techniques, including, but not limited to, proton nuclear magnetic resonance, dynamic light scattering, or DLS, differential scanning calorimetry, or DSC, Fourier transform infrared spectroscopy, so FTIR, MTT assay, real-time PCR, Morris water maze, Oh gosh, this looks like, uh, you know, if you go to a restaurant and you look at a menu, this is like the menu of techniques used in neuroscience research. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, it's like you know, MTT assay and PCR and like all these other ones whose names I don't really know. <laughs> so it seems like different modalities of testing, uh, which is actually quite extensive. Based on the results, they report that the size and zeta potential of these nanocarriers were adequate and safe. When looking at memory, they found that the rats treated with bicalane and, uh, and mictoarm and scopolamine, so all three, showed the best performance in the Morris water maze. 
with or without twin 80. This is compared to rats treated with saline as a control. If you're familiar with this model, you may know that scopolamine treatment results in cholinergic dysfunction and oxidative stress. Both of these effects were prevented with the treatment presented in this paper. The authors hypothesized that this is done through uh, the three genes, so the ones I mentioned in the title, so I'll go over them again, DHCR24, Seladin or Seladin, and uh, 36 or SIRT6 in the hippocampus. These genes seem to be upregulated in this case. The authors also speculate on the role of twin 80 in coding these nanocarriers, as well as their resemblance to the cell membrane structure. Sorry, I won't repeat the full name of the nanocarriers, and I doubt you want to hear it, but it seems like they should be taken into consideration as a way of drug delivery in the brain of AD patients. Next is a paper published in International Journal of Biological Macromolecules by first author Agua and last author Sabra. The title is Self-Assembled Lactoferrin Conjugated Linoleic Acid Micelles as an Orally Active Targeted Nanoplatform for Alzheimer's Disease. I'm going to read this title again, slowly. <laughs> Self-Assembled Lactoferrin Conjugated Linoleic Acid Micelles as an Orally Active Targeted Nanoplatform for Alzheimer's Disease. Here we'll also look at a method of drug delivery that crosses the blood-brain barrier. Ah, the darn blood-brain barrier. Just kidding. While the blood-brain barrier is important for brain protection, it's precisely because of this function that it prevents some drugs from reaching their target in the brain. Therefore, the ability of a drug to cross it is important in the development of therapeutics. One approach that has been considered is the use of amphiphilic micelles. This means that these micelles have properties that are both hydrophilic and lipophilic. One example is lactoferrin that was bound covalently to conjugated linoleic acid to make teeny tiny micellar nanoplatforms so small as 53 nanometer. That's really small. I don't think I can even comprehend what nano really means. Okay, in this paper, the authors describe in more detail how they further enhance the delivery of these micelles to the brain. So make sure you check it out if you're interested. Conjugated linoleic acid seems to be the magical ingredient here. When tested in vivo in an AD animal model, this method seemed to result in higher biodistribution thanks to the presence of lactoferrin. Plus, Drugs delivered using this system had better effects on alleviating AD-related pathology. I will list some of the parameters they reported. So they looked at cognition, oxidative stress, neuroinflammation, cell death, acetylcholinesterase activity, A-beta 1 to 42 load, all of these. Considering these results, this delivery system could prove to be an efficient way to get drugs across the blood-brain barrier. The next paper was published in International Journal of Pharmaceutics by first author Das, DHAS, last author is Mehta. It's titled Cationic Biopolymer Functionalized Nanoparticles Encapsulating Lutein to Attenuate Oxidative Stress in Effective Treatment of Alzheimer's Disease, a non-invasive approach. That's the end of the title. Here the authors test cationic bipolymer core or shell nanoparticles as a potential carrier of drugs, specifically to target oxidative stress in Alzheimer's disease. 
these nanoparticles were less than 150 nanometer in size and presented an entrapment efficiency of 80%. Aside from morphology, the authors reported on other parameters such as biocompatibility, cellular uptake by endocytosis, the generation of reactive oxygen species, and the ability of these nanoparticles to permeate the blood-brain barrier. Spoiler alert, they got through it, in vitro at least. Aside from cellular uptake and internalization, the authors were also interested in the antioxidant properties of the cationic shell of these nanocarriers. Results show significant scavenging of reactive oxygen species in vitro. Now in vivo, when delivered intranasally, they did not show toxicity and were found in high levels in the brain, meaning they successfully reached the brain. Now onto a paper titled Double Optimization of Very Vastigmine-Loaded Nanostructured Lipid Carriers for Nose-to-Brain Delivery Using the Quality by Design Approach, Formulation Variables, and Instrumental Parameters. It was published in Pharmaceutics by first author Kuna, last author is Silva. Remember, rivastigmine, or Exelon, is a cholinesterase inhibitor currently used as a symptomatic treatment for mild to moderate Alzheimer's disease. It seems like this drug is not great at reaching its target, or in other terms, it has bad bioavailability. The authors suggest a remedy to this problem by using nanostructured lipid carriers delivered through the nose. They lay out the parameters they use to optimize the formulation, such as particle size, zeta potential, the ratio of lipid and surfactant, and encapsulation efficiency. They chose two rivastigmine-loaded nanostructured lipid carriers using ultrasound technique and high-pressure homogenization. Critical quality attributes remained stable even after 90 days of storage at various temperatures. In summary, this study describes the optimal ways to produce these rivastigmine-loaded nanostructured lipid carriers so they can be delivered intranasally to the brain. Hopefully in the future, you'll hear about the potential efficacy of this system in vivo. I was surprised there was nothing specifically on rivastigmine this month, but here it is. It shows up again in this paper when looking at a transdermal method of drug delivery. I have personally not come across this before in the context of AD, so yeah, you got my attention. So let's go. The title of this paper is Dermal Pharmacokinetics of Rivastigmine-Loaded Liposomes, an ex vivo and in vivo correlation study, published in the Journal of Liposome Research by first author Salimi and last author is Sharif Mahbal Zadeh. This is actually the last abstract before our next break. Here the authors propose a liposomal formulation to deliver rivastigmine transdermally rather than orally in rats. In this paper, you'll find a description of how the liposomes were prepared and loaded with the drug, followed by ex vivo permeation testing. All of these proved to be encouraging. In vivo tests, plasma levels of rivastigmine were found to be higher when the drug was loaded on the liposomes rather than when present in an aqueous solution on the skin, all delivered transdermally. Therefore, the proposed formulation improved drug delivery to the bloodstream through the skin. Huh, this is interesting. I wonder what benefits this presents compared to an oral administration. Like, perhaps more of the drug gets through compared to having it, in, having to ingest and digest it. Uh, I'm not sure. 
This ends this mini section on improved or alternative methods of delivery for drugs. Now on to existing drugs that are currently used to treat other diseases but show some therapeutic potential in AD. But after a short break, Alright, I'm back now. Hope you enjoyed the short musical intermission. <laughs> the first paper in this section on repurposing existing drugs is called In Vitro and In Vivo Neuroprotective Effects of Etifoxine in Beta-Amyloid-Induced Toxicity Models. It was published in CNS and Neurological Disorders, Drug Targets, by first author Riban and last author is Verley. Etifloxine is used for anxiety disorders in many countries. This drug acts on two mechanisms, the GABAergic system and mitochondrial translocation. In this paper, we will be focusing on the latter, and more specifically, mitochondrial translocator protein to which etifloxine binds. This is how the authors think etifloxine can act as a neuroprotective agent against the almighty toxic amyloid beta oligomers. They look at different pathological processes after, and I quote, intoxication with A-beta 1 to 42 oligomers in neuronal cultures. Intoxication. Hmm. Here's a word I never thought to use in the same sentence as envelope beta. I'm both amused and disappointed that I never thought of this combination in my writings. But oh well, moving on. When these neuronal cells were uh, intoxicated with envelope beta oligomers, Maybe I should start saying that in these podcast episodes. So, when these neural cells were intoxicated with amyloid beta oligomers, etifloxine successfully improved their situation. Oxidative stress, tau protein phosphorylation, and synaptic loss were all decreased. Moving in vivo, in a mouse model, they saw a decrease in memory impairment, as well as markers of oxidative stress and apoptosis in the hippocampus. So, Perhaps this drug can be further explored and maybe repurposed for the treatment of AD. At least, this study points at the mechanism of action of this drug being through the mitochondrial translocator protein as a target for treating AD. Next paper is titled Dual Action of Dipyridothiazine and Quinobenzothiazine Derivatives Anticancer and Cholinesterase Inhibiting Activity. It was published in a journal called Molecules by Yon Chik and as the first author, and last author is Malauska or Malavska. First, the authors point that AD and cancer seem to be correlated. Perhaps some agents have both anti-cancer and anti-AD properties. And specifically, they look at the inhibition of cholinesterase as a potential mechanism of action for these dual-powered agents. Through a library of 120 anti-cancer ligands derived from azafenothiazine, <laughs> azafenothiazine, okay, they highlighted 25 compounds. These compounds can inhibit acetylcholinesterase and butyrylcholinesterase with a potency in the submicromolar to micromolar range. One of these derivatives actually inhibited both enzymes. It was a tetracyclic derivative, if this means something to you, and compounds with dual actions on both AD and cancer can be considered to treat both at the same time. The next paper is a drug currently used to treat high blood pressure. It's an angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitor called periandopril. Um, periandopril, okay. 
Specifically, this drug inhibits angiotensin-converting enzyme 1, so or ACE1. Why angiotensin-converting enzyme? Well, it seems like there is an association between the overstimulation of this enzyme and other events known to be involved in AD. For example, cell death caused by amyloid beta and phosphorylated tau, neuroinflammation, and oxidative stress. Now, we're talking about ACE1. However, this is not the case with ACE2 when it's activated along with other enzymes like neprilysin or insulin-degrading enzyme. All of these actors are the subject of the investigation laid out in our next paper. It is titled, Perindopril Ameliorates Experimental Alzheimer's Disease Progression, Role of Amyloid Beta Degradation, Central Estrogen Receptor, and Hyperlipidemic Lipid Draft Signaling. It was published in Inflammopharmacology, the first author Messiha, the last author is Abu Yusuf. In this paper, the authors use a hyperlipidemic AD model because they are specifically interested in lipid draft signaling in relation to the enzymes I listed earlier. So ACE1, ACE2, neprilysin, insulin-degrading enzyme. They used female rats with ovarectomies and gave them a diet high in fat and in fructose to induce AD, as well as injections of D-galactose. This makes me reconsider my own diet. <laughs> Fructose and what is it? High fat and fructose. Yeah, that sounds like me. Okay, well, then the authors gave these rats the drug perindopril, and it's not specified in the abstract how this drug was administered, but they did point that it crosses the blood brain barrier. What they found is that this treatment reduced the expression of ACE1 in the hippocampus, okay, but it also enhanced the expression of the enzymes with the opposing effects ACE2 neprilysin, insulin-degrading enzyme, which is encouraging. More directly related to AD, this drug also had an effect on amyloid beta 1 to 42. Can you guess? Well, yeah, it reduced the levels of this infamous protein, as well as phosphotau. And it also had a positive effect on the lipid profile and caveolin 1, or CAV1, as well as flotillin 1. If you haven't heard of these proteins, there are lipid draft markers. Other elements the authors looked at are cholinergic transmission, oxidonitrosactive, neuroinflammatory stress, the blood-brain barrier, GFAP, that's for glia fibrillary acidic protein, BAC or BAC, and beta-tubulin. Someone's been busy, huh? Beyond these markers, they also looked at learning and memory and depressive behavior. All the elements I mentioned were altered by perindopril in a way that supports its therapeutic potential in AD, or at least in this rat model. If you're interested in the details, check out the paper and hopefully we'll hear more about perindopril in other models, and why not, in humans? If you're interested in the cerebrovasculature in general, you should also check our episode on disease mechanisms and cerebrovascular changes hosted by Ellen. And we do have other episodes on drug development in vitro and in vivo where some papers may pique your interest. Next is a paper titled The Efficacy of Sertraline Escitalopram and Nisergoline in the Treatment of Depression and Apathy in Alzheimer's Disease, the Okayama Depression and Apathy Project. This article was published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease, with the first author being Takemoto and last author is Abe. 
This one summary was brought to you by Joseph again. So thanks, Joseph. The author studied the effects of two antidepressants and one antipathy drug or antipathy drug in treating depression and apathy in patients suffering from AD. They assessed the efficacy of sertraline, esquitalopram, and nisergoline on depression and apathy over a period of three months by seeing if there are improvements in geriatric depression scale. They also looked at the apathy scale in patients that have high scores uh, to start with in these two scales, so the GDS, or geriatric depression scale, or the apathy scale. The authors found that patients receiving esquitalopram had significantly improved geriatric depression scale scores, and patients receiving sertraline had significantly improved apathy scale scores. No significant changes in either scores were noted for patients receiving nisergoline. Next paper is titled Pharmacokinetics of T0901317 in Mouse Serum and Tissues Using a Validated UFLC-IT-TOF-MS Method. Ah, I feel like a robot. Like, anyway, sorry about that. The first author is you, last author is Huang, and you'll find this paper published in Journal of Pharmaceutical and Biomedical Analysis. After cancer, depression, hypertension is another condition where there may be some overlap in drug activity. Here, we're looking at atherosclerosis, and I'm not surprised by the link. Don't they say what's good for the heart is good for the brain? I digress. The drug we're looking at now, which has been explored in the context of atherosclerosis, is called... Wait for it! Okay. T0901317. Robot voice over. <laughs> Let's call it drug T. That's easier, isn't it? So drug T is a high-affinity liver X receptor agonist. The authors here are interested in its pharmacokinetics and they try to quantify its concentration in the serum, liver, and brain. To do so, they result to an ultra-fast liquid chromatography high-resolution mass spectrometry method. If this is a technique you use, they do report the parameters for chromatographic separation in the abstract, and they confirm that their method was validated by the FDA guidelines with good precision, linearity, and accuracy. After intraperitoneal administration in mice, Drug T was found in the serum and the liver after one and a half hours, and the brain after four hours. You will find the values for the drug's half-lives uh, for the locations listed in the abstract. In summary, this paper lays out a method to study the pharmacokinetics of drug T in the context of AD. The drug T being, and this will be the last time, T0901317. <laughs> okay, I'm done. Following up with heart health is a drug that was approved for bradycardia, which is characterized by a slower heart rate. It was approved for bronchial asthma. Let me introduce isoproteranol in a paper titled Brain Pharmacokinetics and Biodistribution of 11C-Labeled Isoproteranol in Rodents. It was published in Nuclear Medicine and Biology by first author Ogata and last author is Ito or Ito. Isoproteranol is a non-selective beta receptor agonist uh, that shows some potential to stop tau aggregation. Huh, finally, a paper that targets tau specifically. <laughs> However, it shows some side effects on heart rates 
even at low concentration. In this paper, the authors want to figure out if there is a way to get the good therapeutic effects without suffering from the unwanted increased heart rate in the context of AD. They do this in rodents using PET imaging and radio HPLC on plasma and brain homogenates. Results show a small uptake of labeled isoproteranol in the brain, but only unmetabolized. However, it was found to be metabolized in plasma quickly, 30 minutes post-injection. In terms of concentration, it was found in the brain to be twofold of that in plasma, which is still too low to achieve a therapeutic effect in humans at a safe concentration, should the pharmacokinetics be similar to the ones in rats, like in the study. This could be confirmed using PET in humans. Now, you may remember from some of our modifiable risk factors episodes that glucose metabolism is impaired in AD, which may explain the link between AD and diabetes. In addition, some antidiabetic drugs seem to also show neuroprotective effects. So why not look into repurposing FDA-approved safe drugs to hit two birds with one stone? Our next paper here is titled Neuroprotective Potential of Anti-Hyperglycemic Drug Metformin in Streptozoxin-Induced Rat Model of Sporadic Alzheimer's Disease. It was published by Pili Benko, first author and last author is Kusa, in the European Journal of Pharmacology. Here, the authors look into metformin, a drug used to help reduce blood sugar levels in type 2 diabetes, which seems to also improve cognition. They want to confirm these findings in a streptozoxin-induced model of sporadic AD in rats. Interestingly, streptozoxin is an antibiotic that is also used to induce diabetes in animals by destroying beta cells in the pancreas. It is interesting that the same mechanism leads to both AD and diabetes pathology. Okay, moving on. Metformin rescued spatial learning and memory impairment in this model, along with improving glucose transport uptake, and metabolism. The authors also looked into inflammation, and specifically microglia and astrocyte proliferation. Both decreased with metformin treatment. Moreover, it also showed protective effects at the levels of synaptic plasticity and cholinergic function in the hippocampus. These results point at the potential of metformin to improve various pathological of AD. To be continued, so the next paper uh, focuses more on screening drugs for repurposing and is titled Targeting Pathological Tau by Small Molecule Inhibition of the Poly-A MSUT2 RNA Protein Interaction. It was published in ACS Chemical Neuroscience by first author Baker, last author Kramer. In this paper, the authors want to specifically target tau protein accumulation by inhibiting the interactions between poly A tails of mRNA and mammalian suppressor of tauropathy 2 RNA protein. That was a mouthful, right? So this protein, I think for the abbreviation, would be MSUT2, if this is um, something you study. They use a fluorescent polarization assay to screen FDA-approved molecules from the NIH clinical collection. They looked at specificity, activity, and cytotoxicity, and they identified a list of compounds to be tested for effectiveness in translational studies. These included duloxetine, sakinovir, and 
Did I say that right? Okay, clovazimine, which can prove effective at inhibiting tau accumulation in Alzheimer's disease. Okay, we're nearing the end. Last is a paper we should have presented under clinical testing. But hey, better here than never, right? This one's titled, A Pooled Analysis of Three Randomized Phase 1 and 2A Clinical Trials Confirms Absence of a Clinically Relevant Effect on the QTC Interval by Umibesesta. That's the name of the drug, I think, or the compound. This one was published in Clinical and Translational Science. The first author... Vormfelde, and last author, Le Gagneau, with an EU accent at the end. Umibestats is alternatively known as CNP520 and was being tested for some time by different companies such as Novartis and Amgen, as well as the Banner uh, Alzheimer's Institute. It acts as an amyloid precursor protein secretase inhibitor. Specifically, it inhibits base 1 protein. It seems like trials to test the preventative potential of this drug were discontinued last year in Switzerland, Belgium, United Kingdom, and Germany. Interestingly, a paper was published in the month of June involving 372 human subjects pulling three phase uh, one or two studies um, results. So they pulled the results from the three studies. Let's take a look. One of the parameters considered here was ECG changes, like something called Friedericia corrected QT or QTCSF. They also considered heart rate in the study. At the supratherapeutic doses, this drug had little effect on those parameters. They took sex into consideration and whether subjects were above or below 60 years. This is probably relevant to investigation into the safety of this drug, specifically regarding cardiac function. It may be noteworthy that the FDA endorsed these results. Now, I'm not sure why it was discontinued, if this is the case, but something to follow up on. This brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you for tuning in with us. We have a plethora of other episodes on clinical testing, preclinical testing, so that would be involving at least one animal model. Uh, we have episodes on novel drug development using in vitro models or computational models. And we also have one episode dedicated to non-pharmacological approaches, so things like diet and exercise. We are nearing the end of the series covering the papers covered in June, and we'd love your feedback so we can do better. Send us an email or reach out to us on social media. We'd love to hear from you. And with this, until next time. That's it for this episode. A huge thank you to the team that is working on sorting, summarizing, and scripting these abstracts as well as the operations behind A-Minder. The music is from Journey of a Neurotransmitter by Nusha Kamesh, musician and fellow scientist, and a member of the A-Minder team. You can find the original piece and her other music on SoundCloud under Anusha Kamesh or on her YouTube channel, AK Music. Interested in joining the team? Give us a shout! We can always use help with content development, podcast editing, advertising, and you can be part of a new and exciting venture. Reach us by email at aminderpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter. Oh, we're also on Facebook now. Don't forget to subscribe to our mailing list if you want access to the bibliography for each of our episodes. The references come with timestamps. Hmm, timestamps. So you can more easily locate the paper that caught your interest. Check our notes below for details on how to sign up. And very close to this, 
you'll also find a link to our feedback survey. Because, yeah, your feedback matters to us. So please, pretty please, let us know how we can make this podcast a better tool for you. And last but not least, thank you for tuning in with us. And on this note, we hope you found our podcast useful and accessible. Until next time.